Welcome to the inaugural episode of the second wave of quarantine-based, evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarata.com. So just a quick programming note, uh, there will not be a new show next week. Um, I did manage to uh, get in time to do it this week, but I just don't think I'm going to be able to next week. So let's start with a small amount of COVID talk, because that's what we do now. Omicron is now in all 50 states and is quickly taking over as the dominant variant. As of yesterday, the CDC forecasts that 8 out of 10 regions have already tipped over to at least 50%, and in some cases up to 95% of all new cases being from Omicron. Now, early data does suggest that the variant may cause less severe disease, but this is still early data, and even if the overall effects are less severe, the sheer transmissibility of the variant may still lead to a large surge in hospitalizations and deaths, as the variant hits unvaccinated and elderly populations. There is something going on in terms of the difference of the immunological response for Omicron versus Delta, said Professor Cheryl Cohen, an epidemiologist at the University of Witwatersrand and one of the authors of a paper from South Africa's National Institute for Communicable Diseases. It's about what Omicron means in terms of absolute numbers, and if the numbers are so big, it can still cause a substantial public health problem, even if per case the risk of severe disease is less, she added. She also noted that South Africa has a younger population and had reduced burdens on hospitals when the variant hit, which may not be comparable to Western countries, especially America. Um, because our hospitals, for one thing, were already slammed and we have a older population overall. Now, data from Norway actually shows that if you look at the overall data, the largest infected group so far is young and vaccinated people, which again means that it may behave very differently in older unvaccinated populations. So, the data will probably continue to show a reduced propensity for hospitalization and death on a per-case basis, but only because so many otherwise healthy people are being infected, skewing the data. Now, you may be asking, if it's less severe, why am I backing self-imposed quarantine? Well, for one thing, I have an underlying medical condition, so I don't want to take any chances. I'm fully vaccinated with three shots, and even despite that, I do plan to withdraw from society fairly uh, intensely once again. Um, I am going to go home for the weekend, uh, but both of my parents have been fully vaccinated, and my mother has been 
uh, sort of grounded, shall we say, uh, as that most of her normal activities have been canceled, uh, much to her chagrin, she's going a little bit stir crazy, <laughs> which is part of the reason I decided to go home for the weekend. I've already been sent home from my job, in fact. And so that's something. And we've been this whole time picking up our groceries using an online ordering tool. And so I think that it's fairly easy for me to transition back to just not going to random places that I didn't actually need to go to in the first place. Um, like going clothing shopping. Um, I have plenty of clothes. And so again, though, I have an underlying medical condition, so I don't necessarily think that everyone should have to be as cautious as I plan to be, but you should absolutely, to be on the safe side, uh, definitely continue to wear a good mask. Um, if you can find KN95s or an N95 mask, those really are the best ones, uh, ones with multiple layers and that fit well against your face. Um, and if for some reason you haven't yet gotten your booster, please do it as soon as you can. Um, because part of the issue is that even if COVID doesn't affect you very well, very much, it could affect other people that you come in contact with. But speaking of vaccines, the U.S. Army's Emerging Infectious Disease Branch of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research has been developing a vaccine for the past two years, and now they believe that they have a vaccine that is protective against not just the current coronavirus, but against the previous SARS virus, and even potentially against new coronaviruses to come. Dr. Kayvon Mojarid, director of Walter Reed's Infectious Disease Branch, told Defense One that phase one human trials have wrapped up and everything is looking very good, including so far against Omicron. Now, the variant obviously wasn't available for the initial animal trials, but it has been tested in the lab in what are called neutralizing assays. And so that is when uh, the that tests whether the antibodies from vaccinated subjects inhibit the growth of the virus. Now, you might be asking, why is this such a different vaccine? And how does it do this? You know, how does it offer such broad protection? Well, it features a soccer ball shaped protein with 24 different faces. This structure allows for more spike protein variants to be attached to the vaccine protein. With Omicron, there's no way really to escape this virus. You're not going to be able to avoid it. So I think pretty much pretty soon either the whole world will be vaccinated or have been infected, Majerad said. And so this vaccine still has a way to go. It has to go through phase two and phase three trials. Um, but it's very exciting. And one of the things I like about it is that it's proactive rather than reactive. We need to evaluate it in the real world, 
in, in the real world setting and try to understand how does the vaccine perform in much larger numbers of individuals who have already been vaccinated with something else initially or already been sick, Mojarad said. And he noted that almost all of the 2,500 staff members at Walter Reed had some role in developing the vaccine. So they have been really working on it hard and really going all in. And I think it sounds really promising. Um, as you know, many things could still go wrong. There are definitely times where drugs look really promising in early trials and then something happened and they bombed out. But if this really does come to fruition, it could be really exciting. Um, and I didn't talk about it specifically tonight, but I was also reading an article about a new influenza vaccine that targets an area of the vaccine called the anchor, which most um, other vaccines have ignored up until now. And they think that that might be a way to develop a universal vaccine for the flu as well. So that means you wouldn't have to get a flu shot every single year. You could get a flu shot and it would protect against a wide variety of flus. So unless the flu that was circulating that year was wildly different, you probably wouldn't even need a booster. Now, again, I have to read more about the paper to really know um, how far along they are. I think they're really in the early days. I don't even think they're to the point where they're They've developed a working vaccine. I think they've just developed the um, idea of targeting that particular point of the virus. Um, so definitely don't look for that anytime soon. But in the future, uh, and especially as vaccines have continued to be uh, developed in shorter time spans than we might have thought was possible, that might be coming along as well. And so, yeah, <sighs> someday maybe we will get past this. <laughs> um, uh, and I think the, the one real big takeaway is that vaccines continue to be one of the most effective and most amazing um, health uh, interventions that have ever been developed and vaccines absolutely 110% save lives. And if you know anyone who's still holding out, um, please try to gently persuade them um, that getting the vaccine will help them rather than hurt them. Um, yeah. Hopefully during this holiday season, we can maybe convince some of our relatives that the benefits absolutely outweigh the risks. Okay, so we are going to stop talking about infectious diseases. <laughs> um, I would like to stop talking about infectious diseases forever, or maybe not forever, but um, in especially uh, not ones that could potentially affect me because obviously longtime listeners will know that I have an actual phobia of infectious diseases, which is another reason probably why I'm recording this in my bedroom rather than in the studio. 
um, because I've always had a large um, concern about infectious diseases, even during times when it wasn't an actual threat. Um, so for instance, uh, the, the famous example is uh, multidrug resistant TB. Um, I've been scared of that since I read an article about it when I was a little kid. Um, and so it is interesting what things stick with you. Um, I remember I read an article about killer bees when I was in like fourth grade and I was terrified for years afterwards that killer bees were going to make it up here and I was going to die. Um, I was a, you know, I was a bit of a catastrophizing child. <laughs> oh dear. But anyways, that is an aside. Let us move on now and talk about some stories that have to do with, uh, first off, with NASA and the ESA, the European Space Agency, and then into the study of the solar system, at least some of the inner solar system planets. And so this is the article I promised from last week, which is that a vacuum-sealed container from the 1972 moon landing will finally be opened. The gas was collected during the Apollo 17 mission. And of course, you may be asking, okay, then why has it been sitting around for so long? It turns out that NASA scientists have always been rather smart, and they kept the cylinder sealed so that future researchers could study the sample with better technology. The sample was collected by Jean Gernon in the Taurus Litro Valley on the moon. He hammered a 28-inch long tube into the surface of the moon and collected soil and gas. The lower half of the cylinder was sealed on the moon, and when the mission returned, it was stored in another vacuum chamber. It is known as 73001 Apollo Sample Container. And so now, the ESA and several other institutions have been charged with figuring out how to open the cylinder and examine the gases within. This is the first time that the ESA has been able to be involved in opening samples from the Apollo program. The cylinder is the responsibility of the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Program, or ANGSA, ANGSA. Um, which assigned the agencies for opening. They hope that the container will have hydrogen, helium, and other light gases and may help us understand lunar geography better and to help researchers better store, ex better store samples for, from future missions to the Mars, Moon, and asteroids. But again, first, they have to get into the cylinder. Now, the original scientists might have had some amount of uh, presence of forethought, but they didn't actually leave a set of specific instructions on how to open the cylinder. And so what uh, documentation uh, from 50 years ago is left is, to say the least, a bit sketchy. Being able to open the tube without introducing contaminants is paramount. Timon Schild, leader of ESA's Spaceship EAC team, said that some 
characteristics of the sample container were simply unknown and that building the tool was a challenge. And so the ANGSA group spent 16 months working on solving that engineering problem. And now the so-called Apollo can opener is ready to be tried. It has been delivered to the Johnson Space Center in Houston and will be used to pierce the vacuum container and the gases should then flow into an extraction manifold developed by a group of researchers at Washington University in St. Louis. The manifold will extract the gases into several containers, which will then be shipped to institutions for analysis. We are eager to learn how well the vacuum container preserved the sample and the fragile gases, explained Francesca McDonald, science and project lead of ESA's contribution to the ANGSA project. Each gas component that is analyzed can help us to tell a different part of the story about the origin and evolution of volatiles on the moon and within the early solar system. And again, we can take the lessons we learned from opening this sample container in order to develop next generation sampling tools for future missions. Um, because as we all know, we are planning at some point uh, in the near future to go back to the moon, um, no matter what the conspiracy theorists say, uh, back to the moon, because we absolutely have been there in the past. Um, <laughs> just, uh, um, I was watching some YouTube this morning and I was watching someone debunk yet another flat earther and it's just, I'm not quite sure why I do it to myself. Um, apparently I am a, uh, I just enjoy being hurt by terribly dumb ideas. Um, but, um, yeah, we definitely went to the moon. The moon is real. Space is real. The planets are all out there. Everything is, as NASA says, it is not some sort of weird plot to defraud money. I mean, come on, if you really wanted to defraud money from the government, you would just set up as a defense contractor. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> Actually take your conspiracy theories and turn them towards things that are potentially real, like, for instance, the fact that, uh, billions of dollars go into the defense budget and are never seen or accounted for again. So if you really want to have a uh, racket where you're uh, defrauding the taxpayers, you're much better off going into defense contracting. But anyways, again, this is not that program. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Civil Politics where I could actually technically talk about that um, in much more depth. But we should go back to science. And so, yeah, that is quite exciting. And I'm looking forward to the results from when they do open it up uh, sometime early next year. So back in the present day, NASA has recently sent the Parker Solar Probe 
flying through the corona of the sun to sample particles and magnetic fields within this incredibly hot area of the sun. Parker's solar probe, quote-unquote, touching the sun, is a monumental moment for solar science and a truly remarkable feat, said Thomas Zaberchin, the Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters in Washington. Not only does this milestone provide us with deeper insight into our sun's evolution and its impacts on our solar system, but everything we learn about how our own star, everything we learn about our own star also teaches us more about stars and the rest of the universe. And so this is pretty exciting. Uh, Parker has been making a lot of new discoveries as it gets closer to the sun than any previous probes. In 2019, the probe, dis the probe discovered switchbacks in the solar wind, magnetic zigzag structures whose origins were mysterious. Now, having gotten even closer to the sun, one of the places they can determine these switchbacks originate is on the surface of the sun. We first learned about these zigzag structures in the mid-90s, when the NASA ESA mission Ulysses flew over the sun's poles and found a few bizarre S-shaped kinks in the solar wind's magnetic field lines, which caused zigzag paths for some of the charged particles in the solar wind. At the time, researchers assumed these were just a local formation confined to the poles. So when Parker found them in the corona in 2019, that renewed interest in these patterns. The researchers found that the kinks in the magnetic field are associated with structures on the photosphere, which is the visible surface of the sun, the bit that you see in the sky, basically. They found that they are connected to magnetic funnels that emerge from the photosphere between convection cell structures called supergranules. The structure of the regions with switchbacks matches up with a small magnetic funnel structure at the base of the corona, said Stuart Bale, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and lead author on the new switchbacks paper. This is what we expect from some theories, and this pinpoints a source for the solar wind itself. And so researchers may now know where they originate, but they still have a ways to go in order to find out exactly what causes them. And so hopefully the probe will continue to bring back data that might help this sol solve this issue because researchers think it might be linked to another mystery, which is why the corona is heated to millions of degrees much hotter than the photosphere or the surface of the sun. And so that is a big mystery um, that people have been wondering about for a really long time, at least since they figured out uh, that the corona is so much hotter. One of the other structures that Parker was sent to probe is the Alphven critical surface. This is the threshold where the solar atmosphere ends and the solar wind begins. Once solar material has enough energy to escape the, gra the gravity and magnetic fields of the sun, it passes the Alphven critical surface 
and drags the sun's magnetic field out into the solar system with it. Interestingly, these particles travel so fast that waves contained within the solar wind cannot ever reach back to the sun, severing the connection between the two. Researchers had suspected that the interface was between 10 and 20 solar radii, or 4.3 to 8.6 million miles from the surface of the sun. Parker has been spiraling in toward the sun and in the last few passes has been consistently under 20 solar radii from the surface, which is 91% of the distance between the Earth and the sun. On April 28, 2021, during its eighth flyby, the solar probe crossed the threshold, according to the data. It was at 18.8 solar radii, or 8.1 million miles from the surface. Now, by the way, I know it's hard to visualize, and, you know, I mean, by saying 8.1 million miles, for instance, it might be a little bit easier, but the sun is mind-bogglingly big compared to measurements uh, we're used to here on Earth. Um, It's just, it's so much bigger. (laughs) Um, I mean, you might have seen some of those sort of two scale, a little bit um, solar system um, diagrams. And, you know, a lot of times there's an asterisk because the actual distances are so far that it's hard at the scale that they've made the planets to be to really indicate the distance between them as well. Um, The solar system is big. And, um, you know, it took, I think, 20 plus years for Voyager just to hit the edge of the solar system. Um, And so maybe 30 years. Sorry, I can't remember exactly when it was launched offhand at this point. No, definitely more than 20, because 20 would have been, uh, goodness, oof, wow. Um, (laughs) time flies. I can't believe that I'm thinking 20 years when 20 years is the nineties. Um, the Voyager probes were launched in the seventies. Thank you very much. Um, this is why I shouldn't extemporize. (laughs) Um, but anyways, During this pass, the solar probe passed in and out of the corona, discovering that the Alven critical surface is not a regular boundary, it's not smooth, for instance, but has spikes and valleys. Being able to see where the protrusions line up with solar activity from the surface could help scientists learn how events on the sun's surface affect the atmosphere and solar wind. At one point, the probe was just beneath 50 solar radii and transmitted a feature and transited a feature in the corona called a pseudostreamer. If you've ever watched a solar eclipse, either in reality or in a video, pseudostreamers are the large structures that can be seen looping out from the corona. While in the pseudostreamer, the probe experienced conditions akin to the eye of a hurricane. Particles moved slower and the number of switchbacks dropped. In this area, the sun's magnetic fields are strong enough to be the dominant force affecting the particles. This confirmed that the probe had passed the Elven critical surface. Flying so close to the sun, 
Parker Solar Probe now senses conditions in the magnetically dominated layer of the solar atmosphere, the corona, that we never could before, said Noir Rualfi, the Parker Project uh, scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. We see evidence of being in the corona in magnetic field data, solar wind data, and visually in images. We can actually see the spacecraft flying through coronal structures that can be observed during a total e solar eclipse. Awesome. The next flyby will be in January and will likely have the probe moving through the corona again. I'm excited to see what Parker finds as it repeatedly passes through the corona in the years to come, said Nicola Fox, division director for the Heliophysics Division at NASA headquarters. The opportunity for new discoveries is boundless. And in fact, the sun's 11-year activity cycle is on the upswing, which means that the corona will be expanding, making it more likely that the probe will pass through the corona. So yeah, that is another big win for NASA. Um, the ability to make a probe that would be able to dip into the sun's corona, that's also just crazy. That's an amazing technological feat. Um, given the temperatures and pressures and just wow. Um, so yeah, definitely amazing. Okay, so let us take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos and come back in just a few moments to talk about Mercury. All right, so please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org.
the Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. Okay, so let us move on, or move out, should I say, from the sun, and talk about some of the planets in the inner solar system. And to that end, let's start, as noted, with Mercury. Now, Mercury is, of course, a bit of an odd planet, Closest to the sun, it has a 3-2 spin resonance with the sun. It rotates slowly and experiences heat up to 806 degrees Fahrenheit on the side facing the sun and as low as negative 274 degrees on the dark side of the planet. It actually has the second highest Uh, density of any of the planets, just 1.5% below Earth's, due to a rather large iron-rich core. Interestingly, though, the surface was found to be rather rich in volatile elements such as sodium and sulfur, despite its proximity to the Sun. The planet's separation into an iron-rich core and rocky mantle just below the crust, suggests that the small planet once had a magma ocean in the early days of its formation. Which isn't surprising. Um, All of the inner um, planets most likely had uh, these magma oceans, um, almost certainly. And so this ocean would have evaporated but due to the intense temperatures, the evaporation wouldn't have just wouldn't have been water, but rather rock. A new paper published in the Planetary Science Journal by Noah Yagi, a graduate student at the University of Bern, and his colleagues features a model of how this evaporation would form an atmosphere and determined whether losses from the atmosphere could account for the moderately volatile elements like sodium that have accumulated on Mercury's surface. Yagi and his colleagues began with two initial sizes of Mercury, one larger than the current planet, which has been hypothesized by some researchers, and one at basically the current size. They also looked at 
four possible magma ocean compositions for each of the models. Volatile species like carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, hydrogen, and water dissolve in magma and then can escape as gas when pressure is released. But non-volatile, rock-forming elements such as silicon, sodium, or iron can exist as gases only at the highest possible temperatures found in the early magma ocean. They then ran a a coupled interior atmospheric model to determine the effect of evaporation from the ocean into the atmosphere. Remember, this is an ocean of molten material, not of water. They then accounted for atmospheric chemical and physical processes, the resulting mass loss from the atmosphere, either to space or back to the planet. In both volatile and non-volatile cases, the magma ocean evaporates into the atmosphere. From there, there are four ways molecules can escape the atmosphere. Plasma heating from the solar wind of charged particles, photoevaporation by high-energy solar photons, such as X-rays and ultraviolet photons from the sun deep in the upper atmosphere, can cause an outflow of gases called hydrodynamic escape, Genes escape, where very high-altitude, high-velocity, low-mass molecules escape the atmosphere before encountering encountering another molecular collision, and photoionization, where high-energy photons produce ions that escape in a variety of ways. They found that genes escape was not a real factor but that the other three measured from between 1 million to 4 billion kilograms per second, depending on the variables of the model. The upper range came from hydrodynamic escape. But importantly, the total loss of both volatiles and non-volatiles was found to be similar. Given the mass loss, the model's time scale amounted to less than 10,000 years, with only about 0.3% of Mercury's initial mass, or around 1.4 miles, um, of the surface being lost. The current radius of Mercury is around 1,516 miles. The cumulative mass loss is not significant enough to have changed the composition of the mantle overall during the magma ocean stage. The cooling times, dependent on the planet's greenhouse effect, would have determined how much material is lost over the lifespan of the magma ocean. The small figures were surprising. Yagi said, It tells us that there must be more to the high sodium measurements on Mercury's surface, as they cannot be accumulated nor lost in any significant amount given our modeled loss rates and magma ocean lifetimes. In addition, the model can be extended to the moon, an exoplanet, or Earth-like planets with an initial hot magma phase with a volatile budget delivered by its building blocks. Basically, what that means is just um, that the original materials are just what was present there, um, And so, yeah, it's really interesting um, that they came up with a result that says 
you know, we don't actually know what's happening here. There still needs to be some other model that accounts for these uh, moderate, moderate volatiles being present on the surface of the planet. So that's interesting. Um, again, I'd kind of like it when the answer is, mm, that didn't work, we have to keep going, um, because that's kind of the whole point of science, is to keep going until you find more and more, uh, you find answers that are more and more close to uh, what is almost certainly the truth. Um, but of course, science doesn't, we don't believe in talking about absolute truths. Um, everything is a model. Everything is a hypothesis. Some of them are almost certainly very close to what happens. Um, but I, I do enjoy the fact that there's still a lot of things that we have to learn and figure out. Um, so yeah. Okay. <sighs> now we move on to Mars and Earth. A new paper confirms that the materials that formed the planets were largely composed of matter from the inner solar system, with only a few percent of the materials having originated beyond Jupiter. A group from the University of Munster reported their findings recently in the journal Science Advances. Now you're probably saying, uh, yeah, that's what I was taught in school ages ago. And you're right. The original theory was that the inner planets formed from the disk of dust and gases that orbited the early sun around 4.6 billion years ago. The dust and gases then consolidated and as they grew, collided until the four inner planets were finally formed. A new theory had suggested that millimeter-sized dust pebbles migrated from the outer solar system and consolidated with the planetary embryos of the inner solar system until they became the planets we know today. Both were based on theoretical models and simulations of the early days of the solar system. In order to test which hypothesis was correct, an international team of researchers determined the composition of Earth and Mars. To do this, the team analyzed the isotopes of the rare metals titanium, zirconium, and molybdenum. I used to always call that molybdenum. <laughs> um, found in minute traces in the outer rich layers of both planets. This analysis rests on the belief that these and other medical metals were not evenly distributed in the early solar system, but were more abundant closer to the sun. This gives a good guide to where the materials in a planet's composition originated. In order to create a picture of the composition of the inner and outer solar system, the researchers looked at two types of meteorites, carbonaceous chondrites, are considered to have been pulled into the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter from the outer solar system, while non-carbonaceous chondrites are believed to originate only in the inner solar system. While Earth's composition 
has been compared to both types of meteorites in the past. And there's been a lot of talk about um, the way in which they are, um, can, how they sort of model how um, Earth came to be, what the composition of Earth is, and um, some information about how some of the water might have gotten onto Earth. Uh, the same could not be said for Mars. The researchers used samples from 17 Martian meteorites from six kinds of typical Martian rock. The Martian samples were powdered and underwent a series of chemical treatments. Then using a multi-collector plasma mass spectrometer, they were able to detect tiny amounts of titanium, zirconium, and molybdenum isotopes. The researchers then calculated the ratio of material from the inner and outer solar system that would have accounted for the accretion of the titanium and zirconium, and then the molybdenum, because the latter mostly accumulates in the core, and so any amounts found on the surface of a planet could only come from the very last phase of planetary formation. They found that the ratios much more closely matched those of the non-carbonaceous chondrites from the inner solar system, with only around 4% of the material having originated from materials more similar to the carbonaceous chondrites of the outer solar system. If early Earth and Mars had mainly accreted dust grains from the outer solar system, this value should be almost 10 times higher, said Professor Thorsten Klein of the University of Munster, who is also director of the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Göttingen. We thus cannot confirm this theory of the formation of the inner planets, he adds. Interestingly, the model suggests that there was a third kind of building material that contributed to the mix. This material would have been exclusively found in the inner solar system and would have been absorbed almost in total by the planets of the inner solar system. Despite this surprise, the work confirms that the planets were formed by collisions in the early solar system. Moving now to the outer edges of the solar system, a new model explains Pluto's lumpy planes. You probably all remember the amazing pictures we saw from the New Horizons probe of Pluto, including the large plane called Sputnik Planitia. The area is filled with nitrogen ice divided into polygonal shapes, separated by gullies that are tens of meters deep. Initial hypotheses suggested that this was caused by convection heating of the interior. This heating, it was thought, would cause deeper, warmer nitrogen ice to bubble up through the top layers and cause the gullies. However, there was no obvious source for this heat. The dwarf planet is too small to have retained any heat generated by their initial formation and doesn't have enough metallic material for radioisotopes to provide nuclear heating. The only icy bodies that have heat generation in our solar system are those like Europa and Enceladus, and they get their heat from tidal heating. 
gravitational interactions with a much larger body, which again, Pluto lacks. New research suggests that the formations are caused by cooling rather than heating. The team realized that it's not about absolute heating, but rather the temperature difference and the ability of the material to be deformed. This means that cooling could cause the same effects as warming. And this definitely works for Pluto. A small amount of the sun's warmth does actually reach Pluto in parts of its orbit. And when that happens, some of the ice will vaporize into gas via sublimation. This nitrogen takes away a bit of heat when it, with it as it leaves the surface. And while these effects are individually very small, they can accumulate over billions of years across the vast plain in order to produce the structures we see. So the team built a model of Pluto and ran its nitrogen ice through a series of different variable scenarios. They ran two tests first, one where sublimation provided a heat difference to the ice, and a second where they simply supplied a temperature gradient to the ice. The first model produced polygons, but not the kind seen on Pluto. But the second model looked very much like what we see on the actual dwarf planet. They then tested out different parameters and found that high viscosity materials end up stalling out as little fresh material finds its way to the surface. When viscosities are too low, the model ended up failing to produce the known effect. The polygons developed in a way that suggests they emerge from random instabilities in the convection and then gradually reorganize into sheets, into sheet-like downwellings that form the sides of the features. Small-scale plumes then gradually condense into the large central upwellings seen in the plumes. Now, this is all dependent, of course, on the details of Pluto's orbit, which suggests that they may have formed and reformed multiple times in the history of this tiny ice world. So, yeah. Um... I'm happy to be finishing the uh, year with a story about Pluto because despite it having been uh, quote-unquote demoted from planet to dwarf planet, it's still a fascinating and wonderful place. And so, yeah, I hope that you all have a wonderful holiday season, uh, whatever holiday you celebrate. Um, even if you don't celebrate, I hope that you uh, get some rest uh, because you, I hope, at least have a day or two off uh, somewhere amongst the next week or so. And I will be back with you in the new year. Thank you, as always, for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.